don't know if you've noticed, but Christmas is the only Christian holiday that is also a major secular holiday. In fact, it's our culture's biggest holiday. And what happens because of this reality, because it is both a Christian holiday and our culture's biggest secular holiday, what happens is each year, because of this reality, each year different celebrations are being observed by millions of people in the United States at the same time. And this causes quite a bit of discomfort for people on both sides. Many Christians can't help but notice that more and more of the public festivities surrounding, Christ, uh, surrounding Christmas, they are devoid of any mention of the name of Jesus. Have you noticed that? And if you go into stores during the Christmas season, the music has shifted from joy to the world to have a holly jolly Christmas. And just yesterday, my, my Tria, my wife, she asked me to put on Christmas music. We were thinking about cleaning the house. Thinking is the key word there. We sat there and thought about it. It's her first day of Christmas break. She's a teacher. So we sat there. And we thought about cleaning the house. But she said, hey, would you put on some Christmas music? And so I pulled up Amazon Music, and I typed in Christmas music. And there was nothing that had anything to do with the Christian origins of Christmas. So I typed in Christmas carols. And again, nothing to do with the Christian origins of, of Christmas. I typed in Christmas hymns. And finally, I got some Christmas, some classic Christian origins, but it was all instrumental at that point. And so we just went back to listening to Chris Stapleton. Um, so it's completely devoid of so much of what is, is our music and in in our t- today uh, regarding Christmas is devoid in the name of Jesus. And that upsets a lot of Christians. It upsets a lot of Christians. And so they'll go on social media and they'll yell about it. By typing in all caps. By the way, did you know typing in all caps means you're yelling? I just want to make that clear because some people send me emails and it's all in all caps. And I just don't know if they know. Um, All caps is yelling. So they'll go on social media and they'll yell about it and they'll say, there's a war on Christmas. There's not. There's not a war on Christmas. On the other hand, though, non-religious people... They can't help but find that the meaning of Christmas keeps slipping in. It keeps intruding their celebrations of Christmas as Christmas carols, the classic Christmas carols come on. And what this does, this different celebrations, and it probably happens in your own family, I bet you, where people within your own family celebrate Christmas differently. And you'll see it in the cards that you receive. Is that not true? Yeah, you'll see it in the cards, and you can tell by the cards. You say, oh, this person doesn't actually celebrate Christmas in the Christian way. You can see it. And, and what this does is it affords Christians a wonderful opportunity. The fact that it's celebrated differently by millions of people actually affords Christmas uh, Christians a wonderful opportunity to explain. Now, again, note the word, explain, not shout. But to explain, it affords us an opportunity to explain Christmas and how God's grace 
comes to us as a gift. And we, it's a free gift that we simply have to welcome and receive just like any other gift. And so what we need as Christmas, as Christians, what we need as Christians is a better grasp of the whole Christmas story. We need a better grasp, a better understanding of what was happening in and through the incarnation of Jesus Christ so that we're better able to share it with our family and our friends who celebrate Christmas in a completely different way. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at one of the accounts leading up to the birth of Christ and we're going to let it shape our understanding of what the Lord is doing in and through the incarnation. So Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to be. And again, we're going to look at a famous passage. We're going to look this morning at verses 39 through 56 in Luke chapter 1. And uh, for many of you who have been raised in the church, you know the story. Yeah? Um, you know how... I'm going to get my water. You know how the angel Gabriel... The Lord sends the angel Gabriel to Mary, this young, young girl, and Gabriel tells her, to, what he tells her would have stopped her in her tracks immediately. He tells her three things are going to take place. He tells her she's going to conceive supernaturally. Now remember, Mary's a young girl. She's 14, 13, 14, 15 years of old, probably not more than 15. And Gabriel tells her that she's going to conceive supernaturally. He says the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you and the Most High will come upon you. This is a supernatural, this is a supernatural creative work of God. And by the way, never negotiate. This. Christianity is supernatural from beginning to end and never negotiated that away. It is a supernatural work from beginning to end and don't let anybody talk you out of that. Don't become like Thomas Jefferson. And take out all of the parts of the Bible that speak of the supernatural. Because it is supernatural from beginning to end. And so Gabriel comes along and says, you're going to conceive supernaturally. This is the creative work of the Holy Spirit. What's going to take place here? And then he, he tells her, you're going to bear a son. And no, not just any son. You're going to bear the son. The son, the one that's been promised for so long. The promised child. Look at what he says. He, he tells her three things about this son. First of all, that his character will be holy. His character, the son to be born to him, to be born to her, will be holy. He tells her in verse 35, the child to be born will be, will be called holy, the son of God. So his character is holiness, which is only God's character. And so this is holiness personified. This is God in the flesh. His character is holy. But then, she, but then the angel tells her that his vocation will be of a king. Look at verse 32. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. We just sang about that. This child, born to Mary, is the true king. He's the rightful king. He's King David's greater son. He's the one that Israel has been longing for and has been expecting. And his kingdom will continue to endure, and not just endure, it will continue to expand as more and more people come under his loving kingship. And we'll talk more about that 
in a moment. So his character will be holy. His vocation will be a king. And lastly, Gabriel, Gabriel tells uh, Mary that his purpose will be to save. Now, all of this comes out, by the way, before he's born. Gabriel knows everything about the son that's going to come. He says his vocation will be to save. Look at verse 31. And you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So God chooses the name of the son, Jesus. And Jesus, as you may or may not know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, is the Greek form of the name uh, Joshua. And Joshua means Yahweh saves, which is why in Matthew's account, remember in Matthew's account, uh, the angel comes to Joseph, Mary's fiance, and says, concerning this child, you're to give him the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, you put all of that together, and what does it tell you? It tells you the king of the universe is given the name Savior, which means all of his holiness and all of his power, all of his deity, it stands in the service of his saving mercy. That's amazing. All power, all holiness, all of it stands in the, in the service of his saving mercy. So this child, who was God in the flesh, entered into his own creation to be a holy, divine, saving king. That's just, that's amazing. And Mary responds. This is the news that's given to her. It's startling to say the least. And again, look at her response, verse 38. She says, let it be to me, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Now again, we talked about this two weeks ago, but look at what she's not saying. She's not saying, I get it, it's so clear now, and I love this plan. She's not saying that at all. She's not saying that. She, she probably wasn't all that excited about this plan. Because she knew it was going to mean ridicule for her. She knew she was going to lose her reputation in her little community. And boy, I don't know if you've ever uh, thought you were going to lose your reputation. That's a terrifying thing. She thought she was going to lose her reputation in her community. She thought she was going to lose all of her little friendships. <coughs> she thought Joseph was going to divorce her, and he was. So she probably didn't love this plan. But what she is saying, though, is even though it doesn't all make sense to me right now, I will trust you, Lord. I know it won't be easy, but despite my fears, despite my reservations, I will trust the Lord and I will move forward. You know what that is? That's, that's a mark of genuine discipleship to the Lord. Because sometimes all you can do in life is to do what Mary does right here. Sometimes all you can do is trust the Lord with whatever your situation is, despite your fears, despite your reservations, and move forward with them, knowing he's called you to it. And that's, again, that's a mark of mature discipleship. And that's what Mary does here. It's a, it's a mark of genuine, mature discipleship. So Gabriel, he has already rocked her world. He's told her she's going to conceive supernaturally. She's going to bear a son, and not just any son, but the promised son. And then lastly... He tells her she's going to marvel at who else is pregnant. Because Gabriel tells her in verse 36 that her relative, probably her aunt, uh, Elizabeth, who everyone has known, is older and barren. At this point, Gabriel says she's actually six months pregnant. 
And that's a, just a startling piece of news for, uh, for Mary to hear. And though Mary doesn't know it yet, uh, Elizabeth's husband knows, and he's probably communicated with Elizabeth, that the child inside of her womb is also a son of destiny. Inside of her womb is the one the Old Testament predicted who would come before the Lord and would prepare the way for the Lord. And Elizabeth is carrying this child. Now, what's going to happen in our text this morning, in verses 39 through 50, uh, 45, is we're going to see these two mothers of destiny meet. So if you're a note taker, take note. Verses 39 through 45 is the mothers of destiny meet. And shared life is prioritized. And I want you to make note of that. The mothers of destiny meet and shared life is prioritized. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And then in verses 46 through 56, we'll see Mary sings and the Lord is praised. So with that, let's get into the text. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 39, where the mothers of destiny meet and shared life is prioritized. Look at how it is told to us in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Um, Luke doesn't specify the town that she went to, but given the fact that Zechariah was a priest, the house had to be somewhere close to the temple. So probably it, it was somewhere near Jerusalem. So this is probably at least a 60 to an 80-mile journey that uh, Mary makes, and this is all before planes, trains, and automobiles. But she must have sensed that the Lord was calling her to go here, to go to be with Elizabeth. And so she packs up her things, and she makes the trek to go visit Elizabeth. And she enters into Elizabeth's home. She greets Elizabeth, verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So Elizabeth here, filled with the Holy Spirit, she perceives what's really going on here. She perceives that her young niece, maybe 13, maybe 14, maybe 15, she perceives that her young niece, the the Spirit tells her that she has been, Mary has been graciously chosen by God to bear the Savior. And also notice in verse 44, that John, that's who, remember, Elizabeth's carrying. John, in the womb of Elizabeth, he initiates his role as the forerunner to the Messiah, as the one who announces the presence of the Messiah, and he leaps with joy. In the presence of his Lord, Lord, he just leaps with joy. In prenatal condition, by the way, prenatal condition, John recognizes and rejoices over Christ. Prenatal condition, that's a pretty amazing fact, is it not? And look at verse 45. Elizabeth says, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment 
of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth says, you're blessed because you responded to God's word with faith. You're blessed by that. And notice, trusting in fulfillment is emphasized here. God's promise, spoken by the angel Gabriel, is what Mary believes will occur. She believes that God's going to keep his word. And she believes that she's going to bear the Messiah. And the fulfillment of that promise to her is everything you need to trust the Lord that he's going to fulfill all the other promises of Scripture. The fact that this comes true means all the rest of God's promises are going to come to pass as well. And by the way, um, as a side note, notice that these two women, they enjoyed a time of intimate fellowship. And Mary prioritized it. She prioritized it. You see in verse 39, we're told Mary went with haste. That means she prioritized having this time. She prioritized having life connection with Elizabeth. They were both pregnant. They both needed each other. They both needed to share life with one another. And fellowship, (coughs) koinonia, is always richest when you're with people who are experiencing or have experienced what you're going through, either in good things or in downright hard things, which means whatever you're experiencing right now, Whatever it is, whatever it is, is something that God is weaving into your life so that those experiences, those lessons, those challenges, God can enable you to use them to comfort, encourage, and strengthen other people. Because we crave people who understand what we're going through. Is that not true? You crave it. You, people can have a, a thousand opinions about something, But it's the person who's walked through it before you that you'll listen to the most. Is that not the truth? You crave somebody who understands. And this time for these two pregnant women must have been an unbelievable time of fellowship and in sharing in spiritual life. But note, you do have to prioritize it. You do have to carve out time in order for it to take place, just as Mary did here. Now, Let me say something right here, because in a church our size, shared life and discipleship won't happen simply by attending on Sunday morning. It has to be prioritized. It has to be prioritized by the leadership, but it also has to be prioritized by you. It has to be prioritized by you saying, I'm going to carve out time. I'm going to... I'm going to prioritize sharing life together in smaller group setting, whether that's a smaller group like men's prayer breakfast on Friday morning or the women's Friday morning gathering or um, the community groups that are starting up in January or in the Financial Peace University class that's starting up in, in January or on the men's all-comer dinners that we're going to start doing in March. But there has to be, if you want discipleship to happen in your life, if you want to have shared life, life-on-life connection, You have to prioritize it in your own life. You have to prioritize carving out significant time to be a part of a group that you can share what's happening in your own life with another person and they can share what's going on with their life, with you, and applying scripture to it. And that's what Mary's doing here. And if you want to be a part of a community group like that, contact Debbie Conley. Uh, She heads up that ministry. You know she's she's switching roles in in, uh, January and she's heading up the community groups. 
So if you want to be a part of a group where you're known and you can share life one-on-one with another person and have Scripture spoken into your life and you can speak Scripture into another person's life and help each other grow in Christian discipleship, contact Debbie. She'll get you plugged into a group. So these mothers of, mes- of destiny meet, shared life is prioritized. Now, in verses 46 through 56, Mary sings, and the Lord is praised. And this song is commonly known, as you probably know, as Magnificat. And uh, that's based on the Latin translation of the word magnifies. And this is a New Testament psalm, is what it is. And just like when you're reading the Psalms, the Old Testament Psalms, you have to slow down. You can't just read it um, like other pieces of literature. You have to slow down and you have to take in the feelings and what's being conveyed. And so what we're going to do with the Magnificat is um, we'll read the whole thing. I'll try to read it slowly. And then we'll come back and I will draw out what the Lord is, what the Lord is doing in and through this child. That Mary's caring, that she's singing about. Okay? So she begins verse 46. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Hmm. Um, go ahead and stop there. A, a, a little aside here before we move on. Much of the Christian church, uh, I think, has wrongly believed in what they've called the Immaculate Conception of Mary. That's the belief that when Mary was conceived, she was conceived uh, without original sin. And that she lived a sinless life. And in, in fact, uh, Mary has often been elevated to a position of co-mediator. As someone who, alongside of Jesus, mediates Salvation to to, uh, to the people of God. But notice, that is not what Mary says here. Did you notice that? That's not what she says here. She confesses her need for a Savior. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She needed a Savior, and she knew it. Mary was a godly woman, no doubt about it. She was a woman who was blessed by God, no doubt about it. She was highly favored by God, as Gabriel tells us. She was a recipient of God's grace. She was blessed, no doubt, as Elizabeth says. And she was unique in history as the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Mary was not sinless, and you got to make note of that. Mary was a sinner, and she needed a Savior. And she confessed that in this very prayer. And the best way to honor Mary is to take her at her word. That's the best way to honor her. The best way to honor her is to take her at her word and, and acknowledge that she too needed a Savior and she found it. She found her Savior. Look, it keeps going. She keeps singing. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Why? For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Now note her humility. She knows she doesn't deserve any of this. The king would come to her. He's looked on the humble estate of his servant. She marvels at how the Lord has blessed her. For, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. <laughs> for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. 
Remember, name in the ancient world meant character. So again, she's, she's saying, his character is holiness. My son, amazing. And his mercy is for those who fear him, hold him in awe and reverence. Um, and it's for generation. And his mercy is for those who fear him, who hold him in, in reverence and acknowledge his lordship. And that's from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their in the in the thoughts of their hearts. Hmm. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Um, this, um, let, me, let me bring something out here. This doesn't come out well in English, but this is a prophetic aorist. Did that register with anybody? It didn't seem like that elicited much of a response from you. Uh, a prophetic aorist, what it means is, it means, what, what she's saying is, based upon who this child is, these things are foregone certainty. These things are for sure going to happen. They can already be viewed as being accomplished. There's nothing you can do to keep it from happening. And Mary's saying, based upon the nature of this child, God is doing these things. And it's so certain that she sees future events as past reality. You see, in, look at verse, uh, verse 51. Notice all the times she says, he has. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their hearts. Verse 52, he has brought down the mighty. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry. Verse, uh, second part of verse 53, he has sent away the, the empty. He's, he sent them away empty. He has helped his servant. She's saying, these are future realities, but they're so certain I can talk to, I can talk about them as if they're, they're past, past events. That's what she's saying. Based upon the nature of this child. And what she says specifically is that he's going to send away and scatter the rich and the proud. That's who the Lord's going to send away, the rich and the proud. Those people who have social capital and social status in this age. Those people who have a stake in this age and therefore they don't feel, they have no need to be, to be dependent upon the Lord. Those people who live their lives independently of the Lord, they don't give God any reference because they're so rich, they're so proud, they don't have any need. They just move forward, they move throughout their life as if God's not there. And what Mary says is he's going to scatter those people. While those who are humble and hungry, so those who have little or no social status or no stake in this age, and therefore are very much depending upon God to make it through this life, these people will be lifted up. They will be filled and lifted up. So there's a great reversal taking place is what she's saying. With the coming of this child, there's going to be a great reversal. And those who are humble and hungry, those who acknowledge their need before God, will be filled and they will be taken care of. While those who don't acknowledge their need before God, he will scatter those to the four winds. That's what she's saying. That's amazing. Um, it's just amazing. And some, I told the guys this on Friday morning. 
There are parts in South America where you're not allowed to recite the Magnificat. Parts of Africa as well. Um, because they take, they take her words so seriously that if you're a government official and you're dictating people, they don't want to hear these words at all. Um, they take the, the words that seriously. And what she's saying is there's going to be this great reversal and the, those who are lowly will be lifted up and those who are high, they will be scattered based upon this child. And she continues, verse 54. She says, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. As He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. So because of this child, God's taken hold of Israel. In remembrance of his mercy, he has, um, he has taken hold of Israel. The mercy, the mercy he extended to Abraham. That he's going to accomplish all that he promised to Abraham. So she's singing. What she's singing about here is all about what God will accomplish in and through this child for his people. Verse 56. And Mary remained with her about three months. And then return to her home. And we'll stop right there. But notice how deep and profound these words are from Mary. Notice how saturated her thinking is in Old Testament scripture. And remember, she's a young girl. 14, 15, no more than 16. And at one of the most critical times of her life, what comes spilling out? It's scripture. It's the word of God. She's absorbed the Bible from a young age, and you can tell because it shapes everything she's saying here. It shaped her life. Mary knew the scriptures, and she meditated upon them. She uh, memorized them. And in one of the most critical moments of her life, she recalled them, and she put her weight down upon them. If you were to cut Mary open, (laughs) she would bleed Bible. She would bleed Bible. Let me say something here about the importance of having your kids or your grandkids in Sunday school or in the Iwana program. It's absolutely necessary. One of the challenges of being a parent in our day is there's every there's something always competing for Sunday morning. Have you noticed that? It's the youth soccer league. It's the youth volleyball league. Come and have your eight-year-old play in a traveling sports team. It's whatever horse show is happening in my own kid's life. Um, there's always something competing for Sunday school, for, for your kid's Sunday morning. You want to know what's really necessary for your kids? It's regular attendance uh, at church. It's regular attendance with the people of God. You want your kids growing up knowing God's word, having it shape their young hearts and their young minds, so at the critical moments of their life when everything hits the fan, what comes out of them is thinking along the truth of the gospel. That won't happen by chance, right? It just won't happen by chance. Well, what will it happen by? Intentionality. It happens through intention of the parents. It happens who, by parents and grandparents who say, yeah, I know there's a youth soccer game going on. I'm very happy about that. You're going to church. We come under God's word on Sunday morning. Now listen, I don't want to preach at you more than I already do. 
I don't want this shouldn't be a guilt trip, but it is a reality check for parents, myself included. We have uh, this is the biggest struggle in my home right now. Is there are all sorts of things vying for our kids' attention on Sunday morning. I've been doing pastoral work for twenty. Wow, I'm getting old. Twenty-two years, not long as long as Bill, but it's been twenty-two twenty-two years now. And I'm always amazed when parents come to me when their kids are in their twenties and say, "Our kids aren't walking with the Lord." And I have to remind them, well, when your kid attends church one out of six weeks, what do you think is going to happen? They're they're being shaped and molded every other hour of the of the day by the culture. There has to be a priority. There has to be intentionality on the part of the parents and the grandparents to say, I know there are other things happening on Sunday morning, but we value the Word of God. We value the people of God. We value coming under it and submitting to Christ. And you can tell that Mary's parents were intentional about it. Because at the most intense, critical moment of her life, if you know the Scriptures, you know she's, she's speaking Old Testament Scripture right here. It just comes out of her. And like Mary, we want our kids at the big critical moments of their life for what to come to their mind and what to shape their thinking and what therefore shapes their life is gospel-centered thinking that comes out of coming under the Word of God. Yeah? Okay, let's go back here. I want to see what the, what Mary's saying, the Lord's saying. How much time do I got? Oh, I got plenty of time. <clears throat> I want to go back and I want to see what, what Mary's singing about, what she says the Lord is doing in and through the incarnation because there's three things... Mary says the Lord is doing in and through this child that she's carrying. So uh, so what's the Lord doing in and through Mary, and what will he do in and through Christ, this child that she's carrying? Three things. Here's the first one. What's he doing? First, he's demonstrating his greatness. What is the Lord doing in and through this, this child that she's carrying? He's demonstrating his greatness. How? By using weak and unimpressive people. By using weak and unimpressive people to accomplish his redemptive purposes. Well, who's the weak and the unimpressive? Mary. Remember, Mary at this point, she's a young girl, no more than 15 years of age. And we know, based upon the the sacrifice that her and Joseph make in the upcoming days, that they were quite poor. And her pregnancy here means that she's going to be a social outcast. So here's Mary, this young, poor unimpressive girl near the bottom of the social ladder and this is who the Lord says this is who I'm going to use this is who I'm going to use to accomplish my eternal redemptive purposes and that is great news because do you oftentimes feel weak and unimpressive do you honestly when you look at the mirror look at look at yourself in the mirror do you say wow I am looking better today than I did 10 years ago no, you look at yourself in the mirror, and I noticed the other day I have I started to get my grandpa's eyebrows, um, and it freaked me out. I thought, oh my gosh, those are grandpa eyebrows. Um, weak and unimpressive is who the Lord works through. This is always who the Lord works through. This is why He chose Israel, and and and, and so we have to remember the Lord always works through. Weak and unimpressive. Maybe, maybe the job promotion you were hoping for didn't come, didn't come this year. Or the marriage you were dreaming of fell apart. Or the life you had hoped for hasn't arrived yet. Or the ministry you sought hasn't materialized. 
If that's true, let me encourage you by reading again what Mary's saying. She's saying he has been mindful of the humble estate of his servant. Which means the Lord knows exactly where you're at. He knows exactly where you're at. He knows exactly what you may be experiencing. And this may be the season of your life where he is stripping everything away in your life that you sought to gain an identity from. Rather than resting in the identity that Christ has already given you. In order for you to fully depend upon him. So that you can be more pliable in the hands of the, of the king. So that you can be used for greater purposes in his plan. In his plan for your life. Because the Lord often uses weak and unimpressive people to accomplish his great eternal purposes. You want proof of that? By the way? Well, we've been in the book of Corinthians for the last many, many months. I'm not going to make you turn there, but remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, Corinthians, do you not remember? I came to you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. I preached you a message that was considered foolishness. And oh, by the way, Corinthians, you're kind of weak and unimpressive. Um, God doesn't choose the wise. He doesn't choose the noble. He uses the weak and the unimpressive to shame the strong. This is what he does. And this is what he's doing with Mary. He's using the weak and the unimpressive to demonstrate his greatness. So the people would recognize it's not Mary that matters. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. So what's he doing through the incarnation? First, he's demonstrating his greatness by using the weak and the unimpressive to accomplish his purposes. Secondly, what's he doing? He's dethroning worldly kingdoms. And you've got to let that one sit there for a moment. He's dethroning worldly kingdoms. How? By establishing what, tr- what a true king looks like. Now listen, we tend, to, we tend to say that the gospel is not a political statement, but it most certainly is. The gospel is a political statement. You think about the story in um, Matthew's gospel. That right after Jesus was born, Herod had all the baby boys killed in Bethlehem. Well, why did he do that? Was he afraid that a new spiritual guru was on the scene? Uh Uh-uh. He knew, with the coming of this child, a new king has come. And in literature outside of the Bible at the time, um, to gospelize meant to announce a new king has come. Euangelion, what it was, the term euangelion, where we get our word gospel from, a euangelion, a messenger was sent out to run ahead and said, and say that there's been a great, there's been a battle and there's been a victory and a new king has arrived. So next week, when we get into Luke chapter two, and the angels declare, I bring you good news of great joy that is for all people, good news, gospel, I bring you good news of great joy for all people. That's a political statement, and nobody would have missed it in that culture. What they're saying is, there's a new king. There's a new king in town. And what Mary's singing, what Mary's saying is, this is the true king. And he's going to dethrone all the other worldly kingdoms. 
So this child is ushering in his kingdom. Remember, the angel Gabriel came, came to Mary and said, he's going to, this child will rule and reign uh, on the house of David. He has the throne of David forever. So through this child, he's going to usher in his kingdom. Where the way forward, now listen, this is what makes his kingship so attractive. The way forward isn't through position or power or pride, but through humility coupled with real confidence in the Lord that he will vindicate and deliver his people. This is what Mary thinks about. She says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. My Savior, my deliverer. Why? Because he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. This king is reversing her, her fortunes. But then skip down again to verse 51. Look again at verse 51. So he's reversing her fortunes, but he's doing more than that. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. So the arrogant people, he's throwing them out. He's scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. So he's, he is reversing her, her, her fortunes, but more than that, he's also reversing the fortunes of his people, which means the way forward under this king isn't the world's way of power and position. Well, if it's not that, then what is it? It is through humility and real confidence and trust in the Lord. Well, why would that be the way forward in this kingdom? Because this is the nature of the king. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Because the king himself was willing to let go of his position and his power in order to come and save us. And this is what his kingdom is modeled after. Look at verse 5. You should know this if, if um, you've been a part of TCF for any time. You should know these, this passage. Look at what Paul says. He says, have this mind amongst yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. Hmm, humility. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has <clears throat> highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So the spirit world and material world come together, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the king, the true king, let go of his power, let go of his position in order to save us. And then 
He was highly exalted. And this becomes the paradigm. Now listen, this becomes the paradigm for his people. You see, the values of the world are turned upside down. And the way forward in his kingdom isn't through power. It is not through position, but it's through humility and service. And it takes great humility, does it not? It takes great humility to admit, like Mary, that you need a Savior. That no matter your power, no matter your position, no matter your pedigree, you can't save yourself. That you need a Savior. That takes great humility. So the way forward in God's kingdom is through humility coupled with real confidence in the Lord. That he will accomplish his purposes. That his plan will come about and his promises will be fulfilled. So what's the Lord doing through the incarnation? First, he's demonstrating his greatness. You can go ahead and go back to Luke. He's demonstrating his greatness by using the weak and the unimpressive to save. Second, he's dethroning worldly kingdoms by establishing what true kingship looks like. Third, here's the third thing he's doing. He's displaying his love. The third thing he's doing in and through this child is he's displaying his love. Well, how is he doing that? How is the Lord displaying his love? Here's how. He's keeping his promise to Abraham. He's keeping his promise to Abraham. Look at verse Look at verse uh, 54. Mary sings. She says, "He has helped his servant Israel. He's taken hold. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Mary is saying, through this child, God is fulfilling his word to Abraham. Okay, well, what was the word given to Abraham? Boy, I hope you guys know, because we just spent like a year in Genesis. Do you remember the promise that was given to Abraham? That one... In Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17. The one in Genesis 12 is probably the best. Genesis 12, it says, In you, in Abraham, through Abraham's line, all the peoples of the earth shall be blessed. So through Abraham's line, the promise given to Abraham was that one through Abraham's line would come, who people from every nation could come to, and they could experience God's favor through. They could experience salvation through God. And now listen to what Mary is saying. She's saying, this child, this child in my womb right now is that one. He has kept, God has kept his word to Abraham just as he promised he would. Now, but think about it. Because that promise was a long time coming. Was it not? It was centuries before the angel came to Mary. It looked as if God had completely forgotten about them. No one was coming, it seemed. But then, when they least expected it, he came. Which means, now here's what it means for you. You cannot judge God by your calendar. You cannot judge God by your timetables. God virtually never operates on our time frame. Have you noticed that? <laughs> he never operates by our time frame. We sit there and we watch our watches. We turn the calendar and we think, well, God must have forgotten about me. He doesn't follow your agenda. He doesn't follow your schedule. He may appear to be slow, but he never forgets his promises. 
So let me ask you, is there something in your life where you sense the Lord has spoken plainly to you about it? Something regarding your future and it hasn't come about yet? If that's the case, he may be, it may seem that he has forgotten about you. It may seem, he may seem to be working very slowly. Or, to, again, to have completely forgotten. But you can actually walk confidently with him through that season because his promises will come true. He always keeps his promises. And when they come, they will burst the banks of our imaginations. They will burst the banks of our imagination. Imagination. Jot down Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. We won't look it up. But Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. It's where Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask, think, or imagine. It's one of the main things that incarnation teaches us, that God is working out his promises and he will fulfill them in his time. So what does God, what does Mary say God's doing through the incarnation? First, he's demonstrating his greatness by using the weak and the unimpressive to accomplish his eternal purposes. Second, he's dethroning worldly kingdoms by establishing what true kingship looks like. And true kingship looks far better than any political structure we've ever seen. Way better than any political structure we've ever seen. Third, he's displaying his love by keeping his promise to Abraham. And all of this fills Mary with tremendous joy. It all, all of it fills her with tremendous joy. So let me close here by offering two pieces of pastoral advice on how you, like Mary, can actually enter into the Christmas story and the Christmas season with real joy, not manufactured joy. Manufacture, you know what manufactured joy is? It's too much eggnog. That's what it is. It's where you try to drum up joy. You don't have joy in and of yourself, so you try to drum it up by some sort of substance. And you try to drum it up, and you try to make yourself joyful. It never works. Maybe it does for an hour, but it doesn't actually, it's not lasting joy. So how can you enter into the Christmas story and the Christmas season, like Mary, with real joy? Here's two ways. Here's the first one. You meditate. Meditate on who the Lord is and what he's done for you personally. Meditate on who the Lord is and what he's done for you personally. You read this account and you can tell that Mary is overwhelmed with immense gratitude. Why is she overwhelmed? Is it, is it just pregnancy hormones? No, it's not. Right in the middle of her song, right in the middle of it, she tells of the Lord's character. And she's mesmerized by who he is and how he's relating to humanity through this child. And what she does is, if you look at it, she declares his holiness. She says in the second part of verse 49, holy is his name. Holy is his name. Holy. He is holy and good. And when she says holy is his his name, remember, again, name in the ancient world, it means his character. So again, she's saying this child that she's carrying is infinitely holy. He's holy and good. God is holy and good. But then she tells of his might. She calls him the mighty one in verse 49. And she speaks of his great strength. And all throughout the scriptures, God is seen. um, It tells of God's power and his might. And this is what Mary sings about. But then lastly, she rejoices in his mercy. 
She tells of his holiness. She declares his might. But she marvels and she rejoices over his mercy. His mercy is mentioned twice in verse 50 and verse 54. It's mentioned twice in her song. And it's an amazing thing. The Lord's holiness and his might gets expressed in his saving mercy towards humanity. And that's the most amazing thing in the world. His holiness and his might gets expressed in mercy towards humanity because in his holiness, think about it, in his holiness, he would have been perfectly just to have left us to our own devices. He would have been perfectly just in his holiness to say, I want nothing to do with him and left us to our own devices. In his might, he would have been perfectly just to have punished us forever. He would have been perfectly just to have said, these people have rebelled against me over and over and over again. And as the mighty one, I am going to strike them down forever. He would have been perfectly just to do that. But in his mercy, (laughs) oh, his mercy, he says, I will come to you. I will come to you in the person of Jesus Christ. I will dwell with you. I will bear the punishment that you deserve, and I will offer my grace as a gift to anybody who will receive me. To anybody who will receive me. And this is why Mary sings in verse 49, He who is mighty has done great things for me. And every Christian, every single Christian, who slows down enough in the Christmas season should come to that point. When you consider his holiness, when you consider his might, but then you consider his mercy, that refrain should not be far from any one of us. He who is mighty has done great things for me. So you want to enter into the Christmas story fully and joyfully? First, meditate on who the Lord is and what he's done for you personally. But then secondly, you engage his mission purposefully. You engage his mission purposefully. As I said in the beginning, every year at this time, we have tremendous opportunity. There's millions of people who are celebrating Christmas devoid of the actual origins of of Christmas. And so you you have unique, we all have unique opportunities during this season to actually engage his mission purposefully. This child promised to Abraham, given to Mary, is the one through whom every nation on the earth will be blessed. And we're called, we're called to make disciples of all nations. So the way to actually enter into the Christmas season fully is to engage his mission purposefully. Telling others that this child grew to be a man who lived the life you were supposed to live, but didn't. And died the death that you were supposed to die. He died the death you, you deserve to die. But then rose again, defeating death. Defeating our great enemies of sin and death. And because of it, he's been crowned as king. And you're called, Christian, to be an ambassador of the grace of the king. Extending it as far and as wide as possible. So we're to tell others, this is what the king has done. He has come to us. And instead of punishing us, 
He offers us amnesty. He will forgive us of anything the moment you, you come to him in repentant faith. Is that not amazing? Amazing. Why don't you stand? I've kept you too long. We'll sing. Father, we are so thankful for your grace. And we acknowledge, we acknowledge that as people, we have sinned against you. And you would have been perfectly just to, to leave us to our own devices. You would have been perfectly just to punish us forever. But in your great love, in your great mercy, you have come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And we... Uh, we who have accepted you at this point, we cherish the mercy we've been given. And for those who, with, who are within this room or within the sound of my voice, who have not received your grace as a gift, we pray, Father, right now that your Holy Spirit would be at work moving in their hearts, confirming these things as truth, and prompting them to receive your grace as a gift by coming to you in repentant faith and asking you to forgive them and to be the Lord of their life. So please, Father, be at work right now in their lives. And Father, as your people, as we enter into this season, this Christmas season, we do pray that we would do so joyfully. Uh, There are so many things that clamor for our attention, projects to get done, that oftentimes we are grumpy in this season. And we pray that wouldn't be the case, Father that you would fill us with joy over who you are and what you've done in our lives, that we, like Mary, would joyfully sing, He who is mighty has done great things for me. And as we sing, Father, uh, let us do so joyfully. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.